Hey folks, Brian Castle here. This is my podcast, The Productized Podcast. We're back for a whole new batch of episodes here in 2017. I'm excited to bring them to you. Today we've got a good one, talking to my friend Tim Conley, who you may know from podcast fame of the Foolish Adventure Show. It's no longer running, but it was a great series of episodes uh, that he ran for a while there. Today, Tim is known as a well-respected and trusted business coach, or as he would prefer to be called, a business consultant. (laughs) As you'll hear, we we talked about all that. Got into uh, Tim's backstory, which was really interesting, you know, coming from a small town in the Midwest into the military, the Air Force, and what he learned there about and how that impacted his later years and into business, into the birth of the internet and how he... uh, he navigated those early years and then into today, into his coaching and consulting business and really how he runs that as a business and how he works with other business owners and how he's kind of optimized his life, really, his, his life and his business around his time, leveraging his time. And, and we covered it all, covered a lot of ground, always insightful. I'm always learning something whenever I talk to Tim, and I know that you will too. So with that, we'll get right to it. Here's my conversation with Tim Conley. I'm here with uh, Tim Conley. Tim, thanks for joining me today. Hey, thanks for having me, Brian. So, I mean, why don't we start off? Like, what are you kind of focused on right now? So, I mean, folks, you know, probably know a bit about you. Maybe they've heard your podcast. I know that your career has gone in uh, many different directions over the years. We'll get into a bit of that story. But what are you kind of focused on right now? What does your typical week look like right now? Let's see. Focus might be a strong word. That might that might be a little a little a little too strong. My main thing, what what I do for a living and what I enjoy the most is I work with founders, entrepreneurs, and I help them become the leaders of their company. So so I've worked with so many entrepreneurs over my entire career, and a lot of them get into this stage of I hustled, I got to this particular level, now I, I'm pulling my hair out, uh, I'm working long hours, I thought it was supposed to get easier, help. And that's where I come in. And I, I come in and I uh, show them how to take control of, of all the things they have to do. I get uh, start working with them to build their first leadership team. So they start surrounding themselves with the right people to take their business to the next level. And in that process, I help them uh, work less hours, make more money. Uh, and as one of my clients said, I love my business again. Right, right. And so you do that. What is it? Do you call your business like a coaching business or consultant or how do you think about it? I really, I really wish my clients would call me a consultant, uh, you know, as a management consultant, an executive consultant, but they all call me a coach. So I am an executive coach. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, I think it's one of those things that like everybody's kind of known for something, whether they like it or not. And, you know, that may change from year to year and whatnot, but. Yeah, I I think we tend to, we probably do this with every public figure, really, but like we put people in boxes, whether it's, you know, appropriate or not. Right, right. And uh, so, I mean, if your clients and people in your networks and things kind of think of you as a business coach, what would you say, what's the other side of that? Like, what is kind of like your secret strength or whatever that I think most people aren't, or that you think most people aren't aware of that you kind of bring to the table? So I was recently just asked this uh, by a friend of mine. the one thing that I'm really good at doing, I have this uh, brain that is very reactive. You ask me a question, it comes up with pretty much the ideal answer. If the knowledge base is somewhere locked in there somewhere, 
So what I'm able to do is take all the experiences that I've had over two decades, all the different clients I've worked with, all the things I've studied, and be able to give them the right answer, the thing that they should be working on. Uh, they, they bring up this problem and then I can quickly say, here's the, the approach you should take. And it works most of the time. I can't give you an exact number, probably 90 something percent. Yeah. Like what's the conversion rate on it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, ba basically, it's not guessing. That, that's what I'm trying to say is I'm not guessing uh, and I'm not going off of some theory I read in a book or something. This is all real world stuff. You know, the things that the particular behaviors that entrepreneurs have put into a particular situation with a, a certain business problem and then there's going to be an appropriate answer for that. Yeah, and, and I guess that's based on experience from your own experiences, but also across the all the people that you've helped and uh, and worked with over the years. Right. And so I, I like using a term that unfortunately became a like a corporate buzzword coined by Buckminster Fuller, synergy. Uh, I have this ability to take uh, different ideas from a variety of sources and create the actual uh, synergistic response for uh, for my clients. And, and I'm just, I'm good at it. Uh, that, that's, that's the one thing that I can say, that's my, my superpower. Uh, out of all the things that I've done in my life, that's the one thing I'm really good at. And so before I get into kind of your backstory and whatnot, I, I guess I still want to, maybe the listeners want to get an understanding of what does this actually look like in practice today? So you're doing, uh, I understand you do some group coaching, some one-on-ones, uh, some content creation. Like what, what are the activities that you're doing day-to-day, week-to-week right now? Day to day, week to week, I, I've been trying to write down a lot of the experiences, trying to write down the frameworks that I use with my clients. Uh, I, I've been doing a lot of writing uh, for a while. Not a very good writer, but I still try. I, I try. I try to get it down. Uh, so I do a lot of that. You know, you you sell yourself short on that. I've read your writing. I, like you do a lot of writing on social networks, but also on your own site, your blog, and whatnot. And it is it's really good because I it's very story based, and I think that's what people connect with. And it, every time I read something of yours, it like pulls me right in. It's definitely worth reading. Good. Just as long as you don't, as long as you're not a grammar Nazi, you could probably get through my writing. But but my writing, the grammar is terrible because I write the way I speak and I still kind of speak like a, a, a redneck uh, from Southern Illinois. So, but so like, what are your, um, like, what do your programs look like or, or your line of product, you will, or certain, like, how does that roll out? Okay. So I do, I do two things. I have one-on-one -on -one coaching where I work directly with an entrepreneur and we, uh, we meet twice a month and we just dive into where they're at in their business. So I, I, that that all starts with a, a business assessment. I, I have a deep dive where it's like a ton of questions, drives drives clients nuts. But we get into all the things that make up their business so that we have a starting point. And then I can analyze that and look for, oh, it looks like this part really needs to get fixed first. So if, if somebody needs to hire a, a leadership team, and they have no money, well, then why don't they have money? So is that sales? Is that margins? Usually it's a combination of both, that their sales aren't that great and their margins are terrible. 
So we go in and fix those things. And then we start uh, doing something else. But if somebody's got plenty of sales and their margins are fantastic, but their business is in chaos, well, then we start on, uh, we start fixing operations. We go in and we figure out what's, what's wrong here. Typically, it's a lack of leadership, both at the entrepreneur's level, the founder level, and middle management. You know, I, it's it's hard to believe how I've been so anti the man for my uh, all my life, and here I am, a guy who helps founders put middle management into place uh, because it's it is so so effective. So so I'll do that. Yeah, I mean, at a certain point, you need to, if if you're going to grow, you need to have system place. But you know, I I, I want to dive more into your like the way that you structure coaching and the way that that works and how you've built that out as a business and operation for yourself. Um, so let's definitely get up to that. But before we get there, I, I do want to kind of go back and just hear a bit of your story. I think folks might be interested or curious about that. So right now you're based in Arizona, Phoenix area, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm out in the desert in uh, way north of Phoenix, Arizona. So I'm. I got coyotes that run through my yard, that kind of desert. <laughs> Very cool. Uh, where are you from originally? Are you from that area? No, no. I'm from Southern Illinois. I, I grew up uh, in in a very tiny town uh, right next to a cornfield, like literally uh, half a block away from a cornfield. Yeah. So so I, I grew up really close in, in just a small town at the time. It was like 500 people today, I think, uh, after all these years, it's it's maybe maybe fifteen hundred. <laughs> so so really really tiny town in southern Illinois, and just had one of those uh, kind of Tom Sawyer uh, childhood, you know, playing uh, out in the woods and you know playing pirates and playing uh, cowboys and and all that stuff. Uh, that was that was my childhood, just living out in the country enjoying the ability to just run around like a madman what's what does your family look like like what do your parents do you got brothers sisters oh yeah i have i have a brother i have an older brother and uh he uh he still lives there in the same town so he didn't get out oh no 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 uh, so not not only that he he was there uh, li- uh he lives right next door he bought the house right next door to my parents, and um, my father put a gate between the two houses so that the grandkids could run back and forth. Uh, well, the grandkids here in Connecticut were like thirty minutes from from where my mom lives, and that's that's about as close enough that I, that I could be <laughs> I, any, any closer. I don't I don't know, but she's close enough that she can come babysit. Which yeah, yeah. It's like here, here, have the kids for a while so that uh, so that we can have some uh, adult time. Yes. Yeah, so, so, yeah, my, my parents, uh, uh, my mom's worked for a bunch of years for uh, the uh, Department of Education in Illinois. Uh, she actually just retired. Uh, so she just retired. Uh, my dad retired a few years back. Um, actually is makes makes a couple grand a month, I think, right now where he makes duck calls. He handcrafts duck calls and and he's actually pretty popular in in the Midwest. And so his duck calls sell for like anywhere from 120 something up to like 300 and something. All right, so I'm I'm like the East Coast guy from New York. What is a duck call? Oh, so uh, it, it's it's a, a little musical instrument basically that when blown through properly makes the sound of a duck. 
And when you're out duck hunting, then you would it would attract other ducks because as they're flying over, they are attracted to other ducks. So if ducks are already on a pond someplace, then they hear those other ducks and they go, oh, hey, this must be an awesome place for us to land. Uh, so they'll swoop back around and that gives the duck hunter a chance to uh, to shoot a duck. Wow. <laughs> Who knew? <laughs> well, lots of people actually. I guess uh, so. Yeah. I guess, I guess yeah. out there in, in, in uh, duck hunting country. Exactly. Exactly. So, okay. So you're living like the Tom Sawyer life out there. And uh, what are you thinking? Like, like, did you early on, did you know, okay, I, I'm going to get out of here and go somewhere else? And, and Oh yeah. Flat out. Uh, seven years old. Uh, seven years old. I, I kind of woke up. Uh, uh, that, that's the best, best way I can describe it. I woke up to my situation in life. I, I was a seven-year-old who understood he was poor. Uh, he, uh, his family was poor. He had no money. And that I lived in some place really small. So one of my favorite, favorite all-time characters is James Bond. All-time favorite. And I think it is for a lot of people. But but as a seven-year-old watching watching Roger Moore and going, oh my gosh, look at these places that this guy goes. Look at uh, it's like in one single movie, he's in seven different exotic locations. And I, I was like, oh, my gosh, this is real. Like that stuff is real outside of this little town that I'm in. I know there are big cities out there I, and, and just in the United States. But look at these places. That's India. That's uh, that's Thailand. That's uh, all, you know, all these different places. Right. Uh, that, that he's gone. And I knew then I was going to go see it. And so it's kind of cool, like one of the scenes on the, the river in, in Bangkok, James Bond's having this chase in the boat and everything in one of these like really long boats that are there. And I've been there. Granted, it was many, many years later and it looks completely different, but I've been there. You know, it, yep. it, it's so lifelong dream acquired. acquired <laughs> yes. It's like I knew it from uh, from that time, uh, from from the time I was seven, that I was going to go see the world. So that was kind of like your vision for your future, travel and get out, see the world. Were you thinking about business early on? And like, when did that kind of come into your mindset of, I, I actually might become an entrepreneur? It doesn't sound, well, I guess your father has doing some entrepreneurial stuff, but like, where did that come into play for you? Oh, okay. So, so two things. I didn't just have an idea of traveling. I wanted to be James Bond. Okay. <laughs> I, I, I uh, you know, he, he wore, you know, he wore tuxes. He had went into fancy uh, restaurants and casinos and, and hotels and had all these great drinks and stuff and fancy cars. Uh, I wanted all of it. I wanted all of that because because my existence was the complete opposite of all of that. <laughs> okay, so then then the fact that I understood I was poor and I wanted things and my parents couldn't buy it for me. So I decided if I was going to have my Star Wars action figures and my G.I. Joe action figures, if I was going to have these things, I had to get them myself. Uh, so this is, you know, uh, Star Wars came out in 77. You know, I was a six year old kid started uh, wanting, you know, it's like I wanted all the action figures. And and so back then, uh, glass bottles uh, were everywhere. And so they had a deposit on them. 
And back then, lots of people littered. They would just chuck them out the, out the window. As soon as they were done drinking them in their car, they'd chuck them out the window. And so I went around and I, with a little wagon and I collected as many of these bottles as I could, took them in for their deposit and took that deposit, bought uh, trading cards and stickers. Uh, I started with candy, but, uh, but found out quickly that kids don't spend much money on candy. You would think they would. So you did some early customer development. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, it turns out they'll only spend a little bit more for the convenience of getting candy at school uh, than, than they would, would at, at the store. And learn, uh, what I learned was uh, parents will buy them candy, but parents wouldn't buy them trading cards. Parents wouldn't buy them stickers that came in like trading card packs. And so I, my parents uh, would just let me roam around the town, all, uh, even as a little kid. And so when I would turn in the deposits for these bottles, I'd go over and buy packs of trading cards and stickers that were all popular at the time that I knew that the parents wouldn't ever buy it. So then the kids would bring, you know, they'd have 25 cents or something in their pocket when they'd come to grade school. And I would uh, split the packs open and sell the cards and the uh, stickers individually. I would eat, you know, and the, those packs always came with that stick of gum that tasted like cardboard. Yep. Uh, I sold that thing too. <laughs> so, and, That's and pretty it, impressive, man. Like early on, you, you've got the whole system, you know, like starting from the bottles into leveraging into the, into the cards and then the marketing system, breaking it open. I mean, that's awesome. Yeah, that that was that was my childhood. And and so then even like the lemonade stand, the, the, the stereotypical lemonade stand, I didn't just sell lemonade. I bought packs of gum and broke them open and sold them individually. Uh, I sold uh, candy bars. I sold all kinds of stuff from my from my tiny little convenience store that that I that I would set up. I even had adults come and buy because I had I had goodies that that they they would just walk by and go, oh, I'll, I'll buy that. So okay, so early on, like, what are you doing for a living, or what did you see yourself doing for a living as you as you got older? You moved out. What what was kind of your first move? Uh, I'll I'll give you the same response I gave my uh, high school guidance counselor all four years. Uh, my response was, uh, I'm going to move to Southern California, live on the beach. This is not the 1980s. Uh, drink wine coolers and learn how to surf. That was my life's ambition. And then when pressed, I said, I will change careers, not just jobs, but careers, complete career change every five years. And all the things that I've done divided up by the number of years I've been working comes out to about every five years, I'm involved in something completely different. Huh. So this is, you mean looking back on it, that's how it turned out. Looking back on it, yeah. And you divide up the number of years by the number of uh, types of businesses and things that I've been involved in that have nothing to do with each other. It's about every five years. How do you kind of characterize that? Like which years uh, were... Were they all entrepreneurial, like business ventures, or were you kind of going back and forth? And like, how did, what did that look like? No, no. Okay, so uh, so I, I I wanted to travel. I'm a poor kid in Illinois. I, I the only people that I ever know of uh, that travel were rich kids, you know, kids of rich parents, and uh, and I I wasn't one of those. And the people on TV who were all rich. So I had this idea that there was no possible way. 
as soon as I graduated high school that I would be able to travel except by going into the military. And so I decided not to go to college, had had a scholarship, chose not to use it, uh, didn't even let my parents know that I'd gotten that letter. I joined the Air Force and went off uh, to travel the world, and they sent me to Texas and then Arizona. And, that, and that's all the places in the world they sent me. So I, so I, while in the Air Force, I traveled the world on my own dime. So they give you like a month of vacation time. And I saved up my money and I'd hop on a plane and I'd go somewhere in the world. What did you do in the Air Force? I did environmental work. I actually had the job title of bioenvironmental engineer. <laughs> uh, the, the civilian term was environmental scientist. What, 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 what's the, what do you do there? Like, what, <laughs> and what does that have to do with flying airplanes? <laughs> I don't... Hey, nothing, but, uh, and, and always got that like, oh, so you, you fly airplanes. Like, no, uh, the, <laughs> the, uh, there's a, only a handful of people in the military, in the air force who actually fly planes. Every, everyone else supports that mission. Uh, so one of my jobs was to make sure that the military did not pollute the environment. The other was uh, the other part of my job was in uh, what's called uh, in the civilian world industrial hygiene, which is to make sure that the jobs themselves people were protected from. So they had the proper uh, hearing protection for the level of noise that they were exposed to, that they had the proper equipment to handle uh, hazardous chemicals and things like that. So I did that. Uh, my wartime job was around was. I, so I had to I never got to use it even during the Gulf War. I never got to use this, but it was uh, it was nuclear, biological and chemical warfare. So I, if, if there was ever any kind of attack, I would get uh, my job was to get sent out to make sure that there were no nukes there. there you know, it wasn't like a dirty bomb, make sure that there weren't any chemical weapons. And I had to go out and sample this. And then also part of my job was that if ever that was the case, when the all clear was sounded by my instruments, I got to be the lucky person to be the first one to take off my uh, mask <laughs> to make sure the equipment was correct. Luckily, you, you didn't have to go through that action. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, I, I've met a, I feel like a segment of my entrepreneurial friends or, or entrepreneurs that, I, that I've met have uh, a military background of sort. I didn't know that you were in the military, but what do you think that that gave you? later in life as, as you built out businesses. I mean, one thing that I've noticed from those folks is that they do tend to be very systems oriented, the systems mindset, they, they grow things very methodically. And, and I mean, I know that you're big on systems and everything. Is, is that connection there? Or like what else, like any other impact that the, that the military made for you as entrepreneur? Okay. So, so question for you, how many 19 year olds do you know that are in charge of a multi-million dollar project? Not many. Pretty much none, Zero. Uh, except, except for some uh, a few kids that came up with some software and got funded in Silicon Valley, right? O outside of those rare cases, no one. But the military takes a kid right out of high school and trains them and sticks them into a job where they are responsible for for something that's really expensive and very important. So first thing was confidence. 
Like uh, when I when you're in the military, you don't really understand this because it's like a fish in water. Uh, Everyone around you has the same level of responsibility. They have to handle these things. They uh, uh, and you have to do that. You you don't get the choice of ah I'm not very good at this, so maybe I shouldn't have to. Right? No, you just have to do it. And so you you develop the skills of, hey, I have a problem to solve. I'm ordered to solve this problem. I'll figure it out. So that gives you a level of confidence that going through college can never, never give a kid. Never. Because you learn that, oh, I am actually capable of doing something very important at a young age. That's amazing. Yeah, so so that's like the 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 one thing. The other was an opportunity to grow up uh, under a structured environment. Uh, and so so partly that's that systems, right? There's a whole system to the uh, to coming into the military, going up in the ranks, learning how to do your job, making sure you do it right. And then then the last thing, and it goes with that idea of you just have to get it done, is that there's never enough resources. There's and and we know this as as entrepreneurs. There's never enough resources to get it all done. But in the military, they don't care. They don't care if you don't have enough resources to get the job done. You just get the job done. That uh, the mission has to be completed. You don't get a choice. Uh, and so when you don't have a choice, then you do whatever it takes to accomplish it. Entrepreneurs learn that lesson too. So that's why I think so many military people have uh, have what it takes to be an entrepreneur is because they've learned they're confident with their skills. They've learned how to work in teams. Uh, they've probably even led teams while in the military. And then they know how to get stuff done even when there aren't enough resources to accomplish it. And having that confidence in the unknown, right? Like going into a situation or going into a business or venture where you you don't know what the answers are, but you have the confidence to know that you're able to figure it out. Oh yeah, you 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 should interview someone who's uh, had military uh, ha- has had combat experience because that that's truly the unknown, and their training has to kick in to be able to deal with a combat situation. You know, th- it's true life and death situation, and and they do it right they they go through that so so there's there's a lot that the military can provide to uh, to young people it's interesting so okay so kind of fast forward after the military i know that you you know you changed direction every 5 years or so what was kind of the the next big not necessarily chronologically but just looking back like what was like a big turning point a big change in direction that you think had a big impact on on things for you uh, mo- uh mosaic um that came out, huh. uh, so uh, which was qu- soon turned into Netscape. Yeah. So just going from basically like going from like an offline world to an online world. Well, I'd already been dinking around with uh, with things like Gopher and stuff like that. Uh, the the internet. Uh, I started playing around on my Commodore sixty four in the eighties. Uh, whenever I could scrounge up enough cash and pay for some CompuServe time. I would uh, I'd get on the internet and mess around. There wasn't much you could do as as uh, somebody not in the military or in academia at, at that time. But you know I played around with it, but it didn't captivate me because it was all text based. Uh, I, I'm a very visual person, and so it was all, always text based. But then all of a sudden the internet was graphical, 
And oh my gosh, it, the, um, I was I was studying architecture at the time, and and I was designing and uh, building furniture and cabinetry and stuff like that uh, while while in school. And then all of a sudden, the internet goes from being something that you just typed words into to where it was graphical. And I was like, oh, I need to know that. And so I taught myself how to how to do HTML. You know, HTML 1.0, man. It's like I know. I I remember uh, my my dad had a like an early computer with a Prodigy account. You know, and I just remember the first time, first of all, seeing advertisement on the computer screen. I was like, why? You know, I'm a, I was kind of a probably like a young teenager at the time. Or something. Like, why are they showing? Where do those even come from? How are they current? Like, just the the whole concept of dynamic content, you know, coming coming from the internet onto the computer screen. So weird. And then the other the other memory that I remember is like the first time I saw a photograph loaded on the screen, it was like a photograph of like Bill Clinton or something. And it loaded like one line of the photograph at a time. It took like 10 minutes to bring in like one photo. You know, yeah. Crazy. Yeah. And the and the only way I could afford that was at the the university uh, computer lab. <laughs> Because there's no way, you know, I didn't even have, uh, I didn't have internet at, at my house the whole time I went through, uh, through college. So what'd you do? Like, so, so that stuff kind of came out. How did that, like, what did you get into? So I loved traveling and I started making web pages, mind you, not websites. I started making web pages and then I started doing that for other people. And so I made a little bit of money there. And then my buddy and I decided, you know what we need to do? All these kids, uh, so the dot-com era kicks off. And my buddy and I decide, oh, we're going to get rich just like all those other uh, kids writing their uh, business plans on a napkin. So we decided to make an international uh, tourism company. And I coded up the website. Uh, and that was that was our very first big push. That was the dot-com era. And... And it was just terrible. It crashed and burned. I had no idea how to run a business. I didn't know what I was doing. Didn't know how to get customers on the internet. Uh, that, but back then, it didn't matter. The, the only thing that mattered was, could you get funding? Uh, and then could you use that funding to get eyeballs? So that was kind of the plan, was somewhere, somewhere we would be given lots and lots of money, and then we would use that money to get eyeballs to our site, and then one day we'd be rich. That that was uh, uh, kind of like the underpants gnomes. Uh, that that was our pl that was our business plan. So that was the plan. Like wh what did, what actually happened with? It? Did you did it take off at all? Like did you have any sort of early traction? It was just kind of an idea that didn't really go anywhere. No, no, it did not go anywhere. It uh, it, it was a bad idea. Uh, we had gotten we had at the time we had gotten like nine guides around the world. Uh, so we had everything kind of committed and. And the one thing we didn't have was customers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we built everything else. We knew how everything in this business would work. The website was pretty and everything. The one thing we and we were getting traffic, you know, we were getting hits uh, back back then. That's all we got were hits and we didn't get any customers. So, yeah. <laughs> I think everybody has that some some form of that story, right? Like, oh, I had an idea, didn't go anywhere because I didn't understand how to sell and how to get a customer to pay, for, right? Right. So, okay, so maybe like fast forward a bit from there. Like, what do you kind of consider your first business that that had legs and that really went? That, uh, that, that uh, what happened was after I failed, I had a bunch of friends in the in the uh, tech space. I lived in Portland, Oregon at the time, and. 
I had uh, some friends there and they basically asked me how uh, their businesses still existed. And they asked me, how uh, how do we not do what you did? <laughs> right. Uh, so that became that became the beginning of my consulting. Uh, so I that's where I learned that I I was I sucked at building like the entire thing that that's how I saw myself at that time that I was a complete failure. Uh, and but what what I did learn was right after that, I, I understood that I didn't know how to sell. So the first thing I did was go out and do sales training programs where I had to go sell face to face with people. Right. I went through some structured programs, learned how to sell face to face. Uh, so the first thing, the first program I went through was an insurance program. And so they had this five week uh, sales training process, formal sales training process turned out to be you know, a terrible process. But I went through it anyways, learned how to sell insurance, uh, hated the, the idea. But the only reason I went through all of this was to get the training was to get real world training. All the stuff I was reading was okay. And you know, I'd, you know, you read a sales book, that's okay. It's good in theory, but what am I going to learn when I, when I actually try to do it? But when your heart is pounding as you pick up a phone, like uh, the, the feeling of cold calling where that phone, uh, when you pick it up, it's so heavy, right? It's so heavy in your hand, your heart's pounding because uh, you're, you know, for a fact, you're going to get rejected the first person you speak to. Right. Uh, going that you can never get from a book. Uh, you can never even get that from me explaining it to you. What I just said is not real to everyone listening unless you've done it. And and so that's that's why I went through that. And then after that, I went over and sold cars for about a month and turned out uh, that I was one of their top se- uh, selling uh, new people they've ever had. Uh, because I, I quickly started making like a thousand dollars a week, and I was brand spanking new. But you only did that for a month. Oh, I did it for a month because they were shady, and and uh, what killed it for me was what do you what do you mean car sales? Yeah, uh, <laughs> uh, what what did it for me was uh, there was a couple that came in and they wanted to buy a used Subaru. And they, the one that they found, they kind of wanted, but they didn't. You know, there were some issues with it, and. Uh, we didn't have exactly what they were after. And, uh, you know, for me, I'm like, okay, it's not exactly what you want. That's okay. You know, I'll, I'll make sales somewhere else. Well, my boss uh, realized what I was about to let this sale go. And he made, uh, he brought in a closer and the closer came in and just hammered them, hammered them until they signed the paperwork. And they got me involved in this by when they went off to do the finance, uh, financial paperwork stuff. They said, sit here and don't let them talk about the car, talk about anything except the car. And because as long as long as they didn't talk about the car, as long as they forget about the, <laughs> the about, about the, the about the bad decision that they're about to make, because it wasn't exactly what they wanted. And uh, and they went off and did some stuff. And then they finally convinced uh, then they kicked me out of the out of the booth and the closer came in and closed the sale. And and then the next day I quit. I was like, I am not going to be involved in any business that's like this. I, I will not do shady work just to make money. Uh, I, I won't do it. If my customer isn't going to be super happy with what I do, then, you know, I am not going to do it. So, but but even then, the only reason I sold cars was because I knew it was going to be hard. 
I knew the, uh, the whole process was going to be hard and I would have to be face to face with real potential customers and find out what they wanted, go through the products I had available and sell that to them. And that's that's what I did. So while while I was doing that, I was studying direct response copy. So I'm doing that, studying direct response copy, uh, trying to make ends meet. I, I'm still doing some websites for people. And then I start consulting where people are asking me, hey, you know, how do we do this? And I'm like, oh, you know, do you know that if we wrote the space ad that you guys have in this one uh, tech journal, if we change the space ad to be this, it'll make it'll get you all kinds of uh, leads. And they're like, oh, really? And so that was that was my start in marketing was writing space ads for software companies. <laughs> wow. So I think that, first of all, learning to sell is so just by far, far and away. So too many founders today are not thinking about how do I sell? How do I talk to people? Or even that eagerness to go talk to people. I'm just not seeing enough of that. Oh, uh, it's worse. Yeah, it's so worse. It's that they're actively trying to figure out how not to talk to people. Like, how do we sell up our uh, sales process for our SaaS so that we never speak to a single person ever and make millions? That that's that's the approach. Yeah, I mean, even if you're selling software early on, you have to talk to people, if not if not forever, to understand what those objections are and, and really dial in market. But on the marketing front, on the copy stuff, like what was kind of the big aha moment or the resources, the books that really changed the game for you? Oh, uh, anything by Caples, uh, John Caples, uh, uh, read, uh, read Caples, read um, uh, Joe Sugarman. Uh, so, you know, I, I knocked off so many Joe Sugarman ads back in the day because uh, uh, he did a ton of space ads uh, back in the 70s and early 80s. And so I, I knocked off a lot of those. Uh, there's a book called uh, by Eugene Schwartz. I believe uh, that is uh, there's actually two Schwartz's spelled differently that are uh, in copywriting. Uh, So there's how to write a good advertisement. That's the name of the book. I'd have to go look uh, on my shelf to see, you know, the, the exact title. But it's by Schwartz called How to Write a Good Advertisement. That is a book uh, that I think everyone should uh, read to learn how to sell. Sugarman's books uh, are also uh, great ones to learn how to sell through words. Nice. Okay. So like back then, you kind of started to dabble in the consulting and and start to work with other businesses, uh, whether it was on marketing or consulting with them. But how do you get into what you consider today's version of your business? Like what was that transition? I I think it was relatively accidental. Uh, I, I... called myself semi-retired for quite some time. I, I just did some client work every once in a while. And and through the process of working for uh, uh, working on marketing uh, projects, marketing campaigns, I found that so many businesses uh, would sabotage their marketing. And it turns out that's because they really their operations suck so bad that they couldn't actually handle more customers. So most businesses kind of fall into that frame where they they want more customers. All businesses ask them what they want more customers. But the way they run their company is so messed up that if they added too many more customers, then lots of people go away mad. So they're like, oh, these people don't know what they're doing and they they ruin this for me. And this is like pre-review days, right, uh, where reviews dominated pretty much everything. Oh, yeah. Now, if, if you're doing anything that that's review based or that might get reviewed on Google or Yelp or whatever, then you're done. 
yeah, you have to fix your operations. You have to go in and fix it. And so then I started fixing operations just so marketing campaigns would succeed. And and then eventually I, you know, so when I decided that I was that I was retired from marketing, I would just coach. uh, I'm using the word coach. But what I do is I'd consult with former clients of mine and I'd say, I'm not going to do the campaign for you. I'm not going to actually make the marketing campaign, but I'll show your team how to do it. And so that that was the point where I transitioned. I transitioned from a guy who did to a guy who advised. That decision to make that transition, was it because that allowed you to, to leverage your time and have more free time? No, no, I just I just didn't want to work. And and so I would name I, I started naming a higher and higher price just to give advice. And people kept paying it. And then eventually what happened that that why I don't really call myself semi-retired anymore is that people would then I would do work for someone. I'd give them advice on how they would fix their marketing, how they'd fix their operations, how they'd fix their sales process and things like that. All the different pieces that make a successful company. I would give them the advice. They'd have their team do it. And boom. Uh, they they made more money. So then they would go tell other people, hey, you should go you should go talk to Tim because he will show you how to make more money in your business. And then that so all pretty much all but one client in the last eight years has been from referrals. So how do you structure your coaching itself? Like, do you use frameworks? Have you developed like a curriculum, if you will, that you kind of go through with each client? How, do, how does that work? I don't I, I don't use a curriculum. I, I started to uh, because, you know, uh, for those uh, listening, I used to do a podcast called The Foolish Adventure Show, uh, which uh, had a bit of uh, a bit of success. And I had a membership site that I put all the kind of training necessary to run an online business in, inside that membership site. And what I learned, and I, and I already knew this because I'd done some work with some other uh, people who are in the info product space, that basically 95% of the people will never use what they're paying for. Uh, I, and I tried. I tried my best to get past that. And so I think, I think at best I had maybe, uh, I don't know, maybe 10, 15% of the people who would actually use it and then ultimately succeed from it. Uh, versus, you know, 5%. So, so with all the hard work I did to try to get people to actually use what they were studying, it didn't really fit. And the reason was, and was that people need guidance. They, not too many people can read something and then go, oh, that applies to this random area of my business and I can do that right now and fix it. Right. Like they need like personalized feedback, like take the the teaching, but then apply it to something actually relevant. Right. Uh, there's uh, being able to make that that leap from abstract to concrete is actually pretty hard. And And for me, it's I've always been I've just kind of been wired that way to go from abstract and turn it into something concrete. So. My one of my little claims to fame was that I was the first membership site that had office hours because I knew info products. uh, Most people would never use them. And if they did, they wouldn't know how to apply them. So I started doing office hours. And that was what started coaching that like doing office hours where all I did was sit and just answer questions for an hour to two hours. And 
And I just answered questions. And then the people would go off and do it. And then they'd come back and be like, yay, you know, it worked. And so that started that started me on this process of moving from being a consultant to being a coach. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm also curious about that. Like when you're working with either working with a coaching client or someone in your in your membership group or like what happens when someone is just not making the progress that they expect and how do you deal with that? Or do they just kind of when that happens? I mean, inevitably, some folks, they're just some people see results some people don't. But do they just go away? Or like, how do you handle that situation where somebody is like the outlier where everyone's kind of following a path and they're seeing the expected results? Some It's just not clicking someone. How do you deal with that? Okay. Uh, it It's sad, but uh, some tough love is necessary. So, so the one thing that I had going for me was I didn't need the money from Foolish Adventure. So the membership site, I didn't need that money. So that was that was something that allowed me to be able to be truthful to my customers. And and that's and I think that's why people liked the show was that I would be truthful. Uh, at, whereas most information marketers, they just want you to keep paying the monthly uh, subscription. So they'll say whatever it takes to get you to pay for another month of their membership. They they don't care. As, uh, or, you know, they may care that you succeed, but they care more that you pay. And I know I just never had that. I, it's just kind of in my uh, my wiring that I would rather you not give me money than than for you to get something that you can't use or that you're or you won't use. If you don't if you won't even use it, you know, I, I make you go away. Uh, so, so but but I always have to figure out, is it won't or can't? Because uh, because if it's can't, then I give them their money back. But if it's won't, it's I send them out the door. Uh, either way is is kind of a tough love that says this what the path you're on is not the right one for you. Okay, so maybe just as we start to kind of wrap up this a little bit, I'm just cur- curious about again like coaching as a business or consulting as a business. Like, what have you learned more recently about optimizing this model? You know, going to group coaching and. Any any tips or, or things that have worked pretty well for you there? You know, I, I'm an experimenter. I like to muck about. So uh, so I wouldn't say that I'm an optimizer. I I'm actually will take something that is working optimally and I will come in and mess with it. <laughs> well, even like when I say optimize, even like I kind of mean like optimize for you or your personal goals or whatever. So I've gone from doing weekly, like weekly calls to now my structure is I only do client work on the first week and the third week of, of each month. And, and that has worked out fantastically because I can I give plenty of attention for, uh, for my clients, but then I've got a week to work on, work on my business. It gives me a time to just recharge. It gives me time to do my, just goof off, uh, you know, in between client work. And, and so everybody just has, uh, I just have to pack in client work into those two weeks every, every month. And uh, and that that's worked really well because I found that clients don't need weekly uh, talks with me. They do not need weekly sessions uh, because there's only so much you can get done even in a two week period. Because over time, what happens is we switch after, say, a year and a half or so with a one on one client. We'll start switching where they only talk to me maybe once a month. 
And then then we start focusing on let's start coaching your team, your leadership team, so that they get the same level of skills that you have. And do they commit to a, a term like a six month program or a 12 month or how does that work? So I uh, so for one on one, I have a minimum of a six month commitment and there's no contract. It's just a verbal commitment. You're going to commit to the coaching process for six months at least. Uh, most stick around for significantly longer than that uh, because they get so much value in those six months that they're like, yes, I want more of this. You know, let's take let's take my business to even further. Let, let's do that. And that's the same for the group and the one-on-one. -on -one. The the group is uh, I, I asked the group I asked for a, a twelve-month commitment, uh, but it's in both cases it's they just pay me monthly. And I've had I've had so many friends tell me, oh, you're doing it wrong. You need to get people to pay you up front, and and they'll do it too. Uh, so so you should do that. And I say maybe. Maybe they will, but that's not what I'm after. What I'm after is to show them that that I am just as committed to the process as they are. Because uh, if if I get paid up front and then if it doesn't work out for them, then they may be worried about getting their money back. But if they know that next month they could just stop payment to me, then I always have to give them my best if I want to continue to get paid. So, so I think the, the way I've, I've done it, and that's just my rationale behind it, but that's, that's how I see it, is I, they pay me monthly, they give me a verbal commitment that they're dedicated to the process, and I give them a verbal commitment that I'm going to do my very best to help them get uh, the results that they're after. And, and so even with the group coaching, it's, it's monthly, but I ask them for a 12-month commitment simply because in a group environment, you don't get the one-on-one -on -one dedication. And so there's uh, some other factors that go, that go into play for group coaching. The, the dynamics are significantly different. And there's, there's probably the, like, in a way, like an added benefit of being part of a small group working off each other, not just working with you. Immensely, immensely. And at the time of this recording, in a couple of days, my group is going to be out here in Phoenix. Uh, I've rented a, a house in Scottsdale for all of us to stay in uh, while they're in town. And we're going to work for a day and a half on their businesses. Love it. And how many, like how many different groups do you work with and one-on-one and, and -on -one clients? Uh, so I have one group right uh, right now, and and I have one-on-one -on -one clients. I max uh, at eight. I've done more, and I don't like it. Uh, it just taxes me too much. Uh, so eight is the the maximum I'll work with one-on-one -on -one at any given time. Well, I think we should uh, we should probably wrap it up here. I think we we covered a lot of ground. Hopefully, something out of that was useful to to everyone listening. I, we were kind of all over the place. Yeah, it's really good to hear. You know, a lot of parts of your story that I I hadn't heard before. This is really cool. Um, so timconley.co, I believe, is your uh, is your site. C O N L E Y. Tim Conley. Where else can folks uh, connect with you? Is that it? Uh, Twitter. Uh, hop over to Twitter at Tim Conley. And uh, that, that's a great place to just, you know, a little shout out. Uh, I don't make it that easy to uh, to get a hold of me on on Facebook. Uh, but if you're an entrepreneur listening and you want to connect with me, I have a group called The Forge. You can just uh, search the groups for The Forge. And if I can see that you're an entrepreneur in your profile, a Facebook profile, I'll let you in. Very cool. Love it. Awesome, Tim. Well, thanks for taking the time. Uh, really helpful, really, really valuable stuff. And, uh, yeah, talk soon. All right. Thanks a lot, Brian.
right. Was that good? Let me know what you thought of this one. Hit reply on any of the emails that I sent you recently. You're not getting my emails? Okay, then head over to my site, castjam.com. You can join my newsletter there. You'll get my best stuff about entrepreneurship, productizing, and more. Also, a five-star review in iTunes is always appreciated. That'll help others like us come find these episodes. All right, until next time, we get back to working on the business. Later. Later.